This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome to our Smarter Walkart series on being ESG wise. My name is Wolfgang Barbeck and I have the European desk of Hall and Wilcox in Sydney. I also teach reputational risk CSR and environmental, social and governance, also known by ESG at Bond University, where I'm an adjunct professor. In this season, we're discussing at Hall and Wilcox the latest trends in ESG and how to ensure that you are ESG wise. Today, I'm joined by Linda Romanowska. Linda is the only Australia-based member of the EU platform on sustainable finance. In short, the expert committee making recommendations to the EU, what exactly constitutes ESG? How good is that? By its EU taxonomy, the EU has so far taken the lead in defining ESG and therefore those developments are particularly relevant for financial services funds and firms, but also any corporates who are setting net zero targets or publishing ESG reports in order to see where the journey might be going. I begin today, however, by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today on behalf of the Gallagher people of the Eora here in Sydney and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal Store Strait Islanders people here today. When we discuss ESG and sustainability, we have to remember the long presence of First Nations people here and how well they took care of country. Linda. Welcome to the ESG Smarter Lawcast. Where are you joining us from today? Thank you very much for inviting me. I am joining from the very same, very sunny, but not very warm Sydney, Australia today. That's fantastic. I think when I look out of the window, I can even see uh, where you are based. Um, but let's look uh, a bit further afield. Uh, the velocity of the EU is astounding. The EU passed its Green Deal only in 2020, you went straight to work and have already produced legislation. I thank you on behalf of the listeners for your efforts in light of the climate and biodiversity emergency. The EU had, however, previously enacted legislation called the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, so SFDR, there are a lot of abbreviations today, in 2019. Which companies are bound by the SFDR and what do they need to do? Indeed, um, the history goes uh, a little bit further back uh, than uh, the EU Green Deal. The EU Green Deal, as you mentioned, was agreed in uh, late 2019, adopted soon after. However, it did capitalize on a lot of pre-existing EU policy work, including in the field of uh, sustainable finance. The EU Action Plan on Sustainable Finance preceded the EU Green Deal. Uh, it came into force in 2018 and it had actions planned until end of 2019. And the SFDR regulation, which you mentioned, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, um, the legislative proposal for that came out of this preliminary work that was already started earlier. I need to note here, however, that SFDR is not the only legislation that preceded the Green Deal. Uh, there's also NFRD, the so-called Non-Financial Reporting Directive, which applies rather to corporates 
it was adopted even earlier in 2014 and, and is currently obliging large listed companies to report on certain sustainability aspects. Um, they started doing that from 2017. They, they report, uh, started reporting in 2018 uh, based on the data of the financial year starting in 2017. So this NFRD will be amended and significantly expanded in the future, strengthened and further standardized by the CSRD, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. But before we jump into the future developments, let me come back to SFDR and your question around who that applies to. SFDR applies to financial market participants. That means entities which are offering investment products. Um, that means they are marketing these products in the EU. SFDR already uh, has come into force. It applies from March 2021. Um, uh, and from last year, the entities had already uh, comply with certain uh, disclosure requirements, those disclosures that are on entity level, and also certain product level disclosures, namely the pre-contractual disclosures. Um, the additional more detailed periodic disclosures will apply from this year. We could go in more detail here. So on entity level, what the companies have had to do, they have had to develop a sustainability risk policy or review their current risk management processes and integrate sustainability risks in those and then disclose information on how sustainability risks are integrated into investment decisions. They also have had to um, consider and uh, report on how so-called principal adverse impacts of investment decisions are being take, taken into account uh, and report on, um, on these principal adverse impacts uh, on comply or explain basis. Uh, these principal adverse impacts for short are being called PAIs or PIs, and you will hear that um, abbreviation in the context of SFDR very often. Uh, currently, the current requirements require you to um, provide information of how they're being considered. However, you have not had yet to have report on uh, the level of achievement on these uh, indicators specifically. So that will come later. Thank you for this overview. I think this pie has not always been delicious for some of the companies. Um, but uh, given the background, I understand that for the first uh, directive, there were about 50,000 companies uh, required to report. Um, and by the second directive, I think it's fair to summarize it as identifying risks in not attending to ESG. Whilst we're now moving rather to what is ESG and how can I be positive about investing in ESG-related products. But um, let's come back to to the work that, that you are doing. You, your work has led to a completely new set of legislation. Can you perhaps firstly tell us how many members form the EU platform on sustainable finance and why are you on there and who else is on the platform? 
the EU Platform on Sustainable Finance is a permanent expert body through the European Commission. Uh, that is a very set sort of structure. Um, a lot of policy processes in Europe have these expert bodies, which are the technical advisory bodies through the European Commission for development of a specific uh, area of legislation. In this case, because it's called the EU Platform on Sustainable Finance, we are providing the technical support on developing the sustainable finance framework for the European Union. Um, and we are primarily focusing on the taxonomy regulation. However, we also provide inputs to the overall framework and also related inputs uh, to the disclosure regime. And also they already mentioned SFDR, CSRD requirements, green bond standard, the, uh, and other related regulations that all together form this framework on sustainable finance in the EU. Who else is on the platform? We are um, altogether 57 members. There are um, a handful of appointed members, which are mostly EU institutions. And then we have the rest of us uh, as selected uh, members, competitively selected. Five of those are independent um, members appointed in personal expert capacity. I am one of those. Those are typically academics or individuals with certain uh, valuable expertise. The rest are representatives from the various industries that would have a stake in um, sustainable finance or be affected by these policies. We have financial market participants, all types of them present on the platform. We also have social partners, we have environmental NGOs, we have consumer rights organizations. So a very, very broad scope of uh, all the different stakeholders that in one way or another would be affected by this regulation. Uh, Linda, can I say that we feel very honored that you are joining us. That's, that's very amazing. There are only five independent members and you're one of them. So wonderful to have you here and that you're able to share your expertise with us. That's, that's really uh, just staggering. Now, from what you said, uh, polluters also form part of the platform. Are they the right people to guide this process? Is there not a conflict of interest for some of those affected? And how, how can actually compromises be, be achieved in such a large group of 57 members? Indeed, some of the industries that have uh, traditionally been seen as um, polluting industries or those that have potential high impact on the environment and climate are also part of the platform. Uh, they need to be uh, around the table because sometimes these industries themselves have uh, some very good ideas on how they can reduce their impact. And also we need them around the table to have the buy-in from the industry and we need to have their perspective represented so we can discuss that uh, with them. And you would be surprised, sometimes the industries uh, have fairly high ambition levels around wanting to improve their performance and not be seen as, as the polluting bad guys. And so uh, we do see uh, that these industries are, first of all, representing their interests, of course, they are um, the voice of their members. We often have associations of these industries present, so they, they do represent the voice of the industry, but they also very often come with um, good ideas and data uh, and evidence on how it could be made better. It is um, balanced in the platform also by other players that are uh, more strongly focused on environment, and so the decision-making process that we follow is that of consensus. We need to come to one common decision 
through discussion. And so that has been key. Uh, we do sit around the table and we, we work through these discussions until we can reach a decision. Sometimes that means if a decision cannot be reached in the period of time that we have been given, sometimes they have been postponed for further discussion. Uh, what we also very strongly take into account is evidence. So once there is a point of contention, all sides need to come with their best evidence. They have to present the evidence. And what is evaluated is the evidence. The reason why we do it this way, especially when the work uh, is around EU taxonomy, is because the EU taxonomy regulation says that the EU taxonomy has to be science and evidence-based. And so the quality of evidence plays a key role here. Thank you, Linda. It's very encouraging to see that industry is uh, moving um, and ahead. Uh, we have seen this uh, in Australia as well. We have not seen in Australia so much the evidence-based and uh, I guess consensus-driven approach. Uh, it's wonderful also to see this enshrined of, in law in the EU that is a science-based approach. Um, now, given that you have already made so much progress, what does the new legislation likely entail? When does it come into force? and who is bound by it. Mm -hmm. We could talk about several strands of legislation and perhaps we should touch upon the key ones that are now coming online. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the EU taxonomy regulation itself. Uh, the reporting against EU taxonomy regulation started this year. This year, entities have to report their eligibility. Starting from next year, they will need to report their alignment with the, with the taxonomy. Currently, these are those entities that are in scope of NFRD, the current non-financial reporting directive. In the future, the scope will expand to those entities that will be in scope for CSRD, uh, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. CSRD itself has only recently been agreed uh, in terms of the final text, and it has not been formally adopted yet. We are uh, awaiting adoption now starting from October. However, we do already have the final draft text and we know uh, what the regulation will look like. At the same time, uh, a significant amount of work is underway to develop the European sustainability reporting standards that will implement CSRD. Um, and the public consultation on those has also just been closed. And we also know the draft standards, um, which is still subject to change, but we have an idea of how that will look like. The CSRD itself will apply to not only large listed uh, corporates as it is now under NFRD, but it will extend to apply to large or listed corporates. It means that, for example, listed SMEs will also be in scope. Also, the scope extends uh, more broadly to third uh, country entities. Any third uh, country entity that has a large um, subsidiary or a branch in the EU will also be in CSRD scope. Altogether, the estimate is that it will increase the scope of corporates that need to report um, four to five fold. So it is a significant increase of the number of entities uh, that will have to report. In terms of timing, it will be a staggered approach, phased in approach. Um, the current NFRD entities will have to report against the new uh, regulation um, starting from 2025 on financial year 2024 data. Other large companies, which are currently not reporting, 
uh, we'll have to start reporting a year later. So reporting in 2026. Listed SMEs have, uh, again, a later uh, entry into application. They will need to be reporting in 2027. Uh, there is a clause where they can opt out until 2028. And the non-EU companies with branches and subsidiaries to them, it applies. Um, uh, their uh, reporting will happen in 2029 based on data uh, from financial year 2028. There will be specific standards developed for SMEs and also third country entities. Those standards uh, are still to be developed. So we do not have the draft standard for that year. Linda, can I, however, congratulate you on the achieved already? That, that is amazing to push this legislation through in such a short time frame. And for our Australian listeners, I think it's fair to say that what you call standards would here usually be called regulation. So uh, what supplementary to the legislation, to the act, which would uh, provide the details, and I understand you are in consultation of finalizing this. And uh, from the figures that you have given us, there could be up to 250,000 companies reporting then against that. And uh, there are clearly also a lot of Australian subsidiaries which are, uh, 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 which are affected uh, then from at least 2026 onwards. So um, quite an amazing development uh, and certainly something to watch for us here. Um, is it correct to say that the new legislation tries to prevent greenwashing um, and tries to establish a level playing field? I'm just uh, also... Uh, 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 noticing that there has been a dawn raid at Deutsche Bank about a month ago, uh, where the US authority and the German authority worked together on a whistleblower that uh, uh, DWS fund were not actually an ESG driven uh, company. So it was alleged uh, uh, that it uh, was uh, trying to persuade the market with. So uh, Goldman Sachs was another company who had been uh, in negotiation about these uh, greenwashing aspects. Is, is the uh, CSRD something to assist in limiting greenwashing? Yes, all this regulation uh, does try and address greenwashing. Uh, it also fulfills several other purposes, not only greenwashing. Greenwashing is being addressed mainly by increased transparency. Uh, and not only increased transparency, but more standardized transparency, meaning that everyone who discloses information on their sustainability credentials does it in the same way so that you also have a greater comparability. And that helps the consumer to make decisions, not only about what is truly green, but also choose between different companies or financial products uh, because they have data that are in fact comparable with each other, which was not the case so far. This is what the EU taxonomy does. It sets this common definition of what in a, an economy is legitimately um, sustainable and in what way it uh, contributes to certain sustainability objectives or what criteria a company needs to meet to legitimately call itself sustainable. Uh, 
However, taxonomy is not the only way how you can define sustainability. Under SFDR, for example, it is permitted to define sustainability also in other ways than just referring to the taxonomy. However, again, this needs to be very transparently disclosed. So basically, the first thing that all this regulation does, regardless of whether that's targeted at corporates or financial market participants, is significantly increase transparency. And what it will do, it will also create a situation where we will have a lot of ESG data, all the ESG data that's being reported by companies based on this regulation, freely accessible in the market through one common um, access point for, for the European Commission, which has not been the case so far. Um, and this availability of data offers, uh, offers a lot of opportunities for uh, various other uses. Um, and so it is as much about greenwashing, avoiding greenwashing, as about um, consumer rights and enabling consumers make informed decisions. It is also about fair competition. All players in the market will have to play by the same rules. And so that, that's another uh, achievement that these regulations uh, lead to. That's fantastic to hear, Linda, because I just stepped out uh, uh, from a meeting here with the Honorable Victor Dominello, who is our Minister for Digital, Minister uh, for Customer Service from the New South Wales government. And he was telling us about he wants to move towards uh, owning data and sharing data. So we understand that this data is not held by the uh, EU Commission, but is actually transparent, publicly available, and the companies can learn from each other and the consumer can learn to trust the companies uh, monitoring their performance under ESG criteria. I welcome that. Um, now, Australian companies have been stirred up by CBAM. What is this all about? CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Yes. Essentially, essentially what that is, is European Union trying to create level playing field in the EU. Um, taking into account the fact that European entities are um, need to participate in the uh, European Emissions Trading System, the ETS, which puts certain um, burdens on them and certain costs on them, which importers do not always face if they are from jurisdictions where there is no carbon tax, no trading system where they do not need to buy emissions allowances. And so to create, again, a fair playing field within the EU market, European Commission has put forward a proposal on making a so-called border adjustment mechanism of uh, between uh, different jurisdictions when um, any goods are imported in the EU that are covered by ETS in the EU but are not covered in that specific jurisdiction. Uh, and so that company would need to pay an adjustment fee. So this is currently the proposal. I would say that currently it does not affect Australian companies to a significant extent unless these companies are operating in those sectors that are covered by ETS. They, they have to pay attention to this. Uh, this will take some time until it comes into force. However, if they are operating in these sectors and they are exporting to the EU to a large extent, they should be paying attention to these developments. Uh, these sectors typically do not constitute a significant amount of Australian exports. However, those individual companies that are reliant on these exports should pay attention. Yes, and I believe uh, Alan Joyce from Qantas has paid a lot of attention to that and uh, luckily also taken 
uh, some few very good steps, uh, some first very good steps. Um, now, Linda, uh, you probably also have to admit that all of these abbreviations and the current regulations under development are somewhat confusing for uh, market participants. So we have heard about TCFD, we have heard about the SFDR, um, there is the IWSB, which is uh, coming out of the uh, IFRS, uh, trying to develop a, uh, an exposure draft. You've uh, certainly heard a lot about EU taxonomy. If you put yourself in the shoes of an Australian company today, how should they proceed? Would, you know, what, what do they need to look at? Where, how, what should they draft at the moment in terms of their ESG strategy, reporting, et cetera? What would be, would be your guidance? First point of reference in the Australia should be a communication that's coming out from the various regulators here in Australia. And uh, the regulators in Australia are making very clear signals that they are looking at climate change related risks. They are looking at greenwashing risks. They are looking at international developments in terms of international sustainability reporting standards. And there have been clear indications that ISSB is very likely something that will be adopted in Australia. And it remains to be seen in, in what specific capacity and to what level it may be mandatory and to whom, but we can expect uh, a certain level of adoption here. Um, ISSB itself is very closely aligned with TCFD, so the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Um, so if a company is already reporting uh, their climate-related risks and opportunities in alignment with TCFD, they can expect to also in the future be aligned with ISSB. So there is there are a lot of synergies here, and you cannot go wrong if you apply a recognized internationally uh, very commonly applied standard as of now and follow the developments that are happening uh, in ISSB uh, work stream. ISSB, uh, again, had public consultation that has uh, closed recently where it had presented a uh, general overarching standard and the climate change standard and is now starting work on other topical standards and also has indicated work on sector standards, again, in alignment with SASB, for example. So if you have been reporting against SASB according to the requirements to your sector, you can be quite uh, sure and comfortable that you will probably be aligned with ISSB in the future. However, you should be reading the current ISSB drafts uh, and thinking of whether there's anything missing in your current practice that might be relevant in the future. The regulators in Australia have also been providing certain guidance, um, the ASIC guidance on greenwashing, for example, or the APRO guidance on um, reporting on climate change risks in alignment with DCFD. So there are certain guidance documents already available here in Australia. The other aspect you need to think about is your international footprint. If you have very strong footprint in Europe, or you, you are closely linked to European market in one way or another, you have investors uh, coming from Europe, or you have significant parts of your value chain upstream or downstream in Europe, then you also need to follow on the developments that are happening in Europe, because you may be in the future falling in the directly in the scope of the EU regulations, uh, especially CSRD and SFDR, or you may be 
indirectly affected because the European entities may come to you with requests for information and data to fulfill their reporting obligations under EU regulations. Therefore, if you analyze your value chain, you realize you have strong footprint in Europe. That's probably something where you have to pay attention. It is not only Europe, also uh, UK, US, uh, several Asian markets are uh, making steps in developing their sustainable finance frameworks, their requirements on sustainability reporting, their requirements on climate risk reporting. Um, and so you should be analyzing and keeping track of all those markets where you operate or have strong connections to. Linda, eventually, of course, all of these developments are aiming to achieve transparency, avoiding greenwashing and setting rules how to operate in the future for those companies. So I wouldn't be surprised if many of those regulations have similar content. If I remember well, you were advising that a lot of observers um, are present when you develop uh, the CSRD and taking notes of the EU taxonomy developments. Is that correct? Yes, there are observer entities sitting on the EU platform sustainable finance, which is specifically linked to the EU taxonomy development, but also I'm appointed to a separate expert group, which is helping develop the sustainability reporting standards under CSRD, which is a separate process. And this is done under FRAG, which is the uh, standardization body in Europe that's writing, that has been tasked with writing these standards. And this body also is member of IFRS, so the entity, the international standardization entity that's working on the international ISSB standard. So what we can see is that A, we have international observers in the taxonomy process, B, the European standard setters on sustainability reporting have a very strong influence and a substantial input into development of ISSB. We can expect that the European standards will be more detailed and will have a broader range of requirements than ISSB, simply because there is more European regulation that has detailed requirements, that, which we do not have internationally. So ISSB may be more aligned with TCFD. The European standards will probably have uh, added scope on top of that. Okay. Uh, Linda, uh, how can companies contact you via us and... Is that EFRAC committee something you will report to us upon on the future? I'm happy to come back and report on any updates and significant developments. Uh, yes, I can be contacted in my consultant and advisor role. I do also consult and advise uh, both financial market participants and corporates on how to interpret all of these policies and how to imp implement them in their current sustainability processes. Linda, that was amazing. Thank you for enlightening us and guiding us through this highly complex territory. Uh, Linda Romanowska, an independent member of the EU platform of sustainable finance. Thank you very much. Thank you also to our listener for joining us today. We hope that you find the information useful and please reach out to the ESG group at Hall and Wilcox if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website hallandwilcox.com.au or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thank you and good afternoon.